Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Take your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 10. If you do not have a Bible, we do have extra copies. I don't think they're here, unfortunately, but we will get you one. Again, everything is kind of all over the place right now, but hopefully in just a few more weeks, we'll have all of that stuff figured out. This entire year, for those of you that are visiting with us for the first time, we've been studying, um, we call this expository preaching, we've been doing a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. The book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome. The Apostle Paul uh, really had two particular reasons for writing this book. One of them was a way to introduce himself to the church. He had not gone to this particular church plant yet, and so he was letting the church people know, this is who I am. But really the biggest purpose of him writing this book was to talk about this subject of the gospel, which is the most important thing that the Bible has to be able to give to us, and and, and that you can't get any more important than that. And unfortunately, in many churches today, the complete gospel is simply not preached. It just isn't preached. In fact, majority of the large, I'm not saying every single large church, but a lot of large churches intermix this new age teaching with scriptural references, watering down the entire gospel. I was doing some research on this particular subject this past week, and I watched this video and explained really uh, the five overall new age teachings that are popular today and how it has crept in the church in these different forms. And so I'm going to go ahead and give a rundown real fast. First off, you have this law of attraction within this new age teaching. That is the belief that your reality is based upon how much faith you have. You may have seen somebody say, you need to believe this into existence. And the premise behind that teaching as far as a church goes is that if you are a Christian, then you have God living inside of you, which is true. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. But on the premise of this teaching is because you have the God living inside of you, you therefore have the power to do what God can do, which is not the case. The next area of this New Age teaching is this oneness. And this is huge right now. And, and our, our goal is not to be political here at the church. We, we stay away from politics, but we filter everything through God's word. And so this teaching of oneness is everything is connected. We live in this moment that there is no judgment and fear. We must return to this oneness. If we can unify together, then we can achieve a world where there is peace and harmony. And it enters into the church by equating this thought of oneness with the gospel itself. We must become one in order to come into spiritual harmony. And so what they do is they add bad theology in order to keep the peace and they allow harmful teachings into the church in order to keep the peace. I don't want to offend you. We all need to be one. We're only one in Christ. Then the next area of teaching is this this subject of religious pluralism. Most, if not all, religions are equally acceptable. We're not here to hate on religions. Matter of fact, um, a lot of the common questions that I get from people is, what type of church are you? Are you a Baptist church? And I understand their reasoning behind it, but I don't go forward with the premise of we're Baptistic, so therefore we're better than every other church, because that is not the case. The fact that we are Baptistic is not what makes us better. It's everything must be based upon solely the Word of God, not what somebody else says. And so you have this thought of religious pluralism that um, to to someone that is all tolerant, they do not believe or accept the fact that Jesus Christ has only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. They accept multiple different ways to the Father. 
That is religious pluralism. You're mixing all these other religious parts together in order to restore your relationship with God. You've got universalism, which is the teaching that the entire world really is saved within every single human being. And I believe there was a famous preacher that actually said this. Within every single human being, there is this uh, innate goodness. Everybody is good in their heart. They just have to develop that goodness in order to become a better person, which is completely 100% false. The Bible says that every single person is a sinner. Every single person is totally depraved. And the only way that we can become good is through Jesus Christ. And so that's crept into the church by, by, by really this belief that we are all children of God. And maybe you've heard churches say that before. It's not true. We are not all children of God. We are all creations of God, but not children of God. And then the final aspect of this New Age thinking is mysticism. It is seeking this divine I have to be very careful in how I say this, is seeking a divine or spiritual experience of some sort and discovering God through a personal experience that you are seeking with God. It is true in the fact that through the Holy Spirit we do experience relationships with God. That is true. But what mysticism does is it places all this emphasis upon this emotional experience that we have with God. And if we're basing everything upon emotions, it's just, it's, it's not going to happen. It's not true. Matter of fact, you probably have heard of this name before, a man by the name of Richard Rohr. Have you guys ever heard of Richard Rohr? He came up uh, with this book, this Christian perspective on the Enneagram. You probably have heard of the Enneagram before. And it's this personality test that we take in order to find out about our personalities. And some of you may have done other personalities as well. But the Enneagram has, has a history of mysticism. It is mixing the occult with Christianity. And he writes this book, and there are a lot of churches that quote him, famous churches that you hear. And I'm not here putting down other churches. We're not perfect because we're full of imperfect people. But there's this, this trend to water down the gospel and to move further away than what Paul is talking about here in the book of Romans. And so what we've done this entire year is our focus really is making disciples, is we've been focusing our attention here. And I've made, I made a promise to all of you, and I do my absolute best in order to make that not happen, and that is by giving you my opinion. I don't give you my opinion. If it is my opinion on something, I will tell you. Everything that we teach is solely from the Word of God because my opinion does not matter. My opinion may be different than yours, but that's your opinion. I don't have anything to base that upon. And so we've been doing a verse-by-verse -verse study in the book of Romans based upon what God's Word says. So, with that being said, you have several different sections in the book of Romans. The first section deals with mankind's problem of sin and God's responsibility or God's judgment upon man's problem with sin. You read Romans chapter 1, and that was a fun one to be able to study through together. And that was the teaching that every single person is completely sinful and wicked. And they don't have this natural tendency to develop a relationship with God because sin drives man away. And, and God reveals himself, as we'll talk about a little bit later on, through creation. And so therefore, people come to the conclusion through creation that there is a God. But rather than coming to the conclusion that there is a God, they twist that and try to find satisfaction in other ways. That is the first part of Romans. The second part of Romans deals with this teaching, really this answer to mankind's problem of sin. And that is the hope we find in Jesus Christ. And then the third section of Romans deals with how a Christian should respond or should act after they've been saved. It's this process of sanctification. It's becoming more like Christ. But now we find ourselves in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. 
What Paul does at the end of Romans chapter 8 is he stops this rhetorical, uh, really this theological flow that he's had throughout the entire book, and he stops to be able to focus on one particular question. See, we understand the history with the Jews. The Jews are God's chosen people. God chose the Jews to be the carrier of the blessing to the entire world, and that is through Jesus Christ. And rather than majority of the Jews accept Jesus Christ, they rejected him. And so many of the Jews are listening to what the Apostle Paul has to say, and it's not connecting with what they're observing in society around them. Majority of the Jews actually had nothing to do with God. They completely rejected the Messiah, and so they're struggling. They're saying, if the Jews were God's chosen people, then why did so many of the Jews reject the Messiah? All the promises that God made regarding the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, how can that be true if majority of the people that He has chosen aren't even followers of God? And so if you were to read Romans chapter 8, towards the end of the chapter, the Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. No height, nor depth, nor any other creature, which is absolutely the case. But the Jews hearing that are looking around at God's chosen people, and they're saying, well, if God is really all-powerful, then why can't He even save His own people? And so the Apostle Paul spends that time in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 to discuss that. In Romans chapter 9, he talks about God's sovereign election and how he chooses certain people in order to fulfill his overall plan. As we move into chapter 10, Paul shifts from discussing this past situation of Israel to their current present situation. The same situation that Paul was describing in this chapter is the same situation in which the Jews find themselves in today. The lack of belief in the saving work of Christ forfeits an opportunity for them to restore their relationship with God. And that's where the Jews find themselves. When in the first section of Romans chapter 10, Paul really gives the reason for the Jews' objection to Jesus. The Jews place their faith in the wrong object. See, the Jews equated the pursuit of righteousness to be based upon their particular keeping of the law. It's, hey, I keep the Sabbath, and I, I don't eat pork, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. The more I don't do these things in order to keep the law, the more righteous I will become. Therefore, my relationship with God will be restored. Paul says that is not the gospel. The gospel is this. You can't do anything to restore your relationship with God. You are completely depraved. In other words, you are completely sinful. The only solution to you restoring your relationship with God is Jesus Christ. See, the Jews missed the entire point. They looked at the law in and of itself as being a means to restore their relationship with God, whereas the law was simply there to show mankind's problem of sin and to point them to an ultimate solution, which is Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the law, and the Jews missed it. They made faith, saving faith, way too complicated. I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and that's how I'm going to go to heaven. And you may have talked to somebody in the past that have based their righteousness, their salvation upon all the good things that they have done. Well, my question would be, who is the standard of good? So at the end of the day, when you stand before God and you've done a thousand and one good things in your life, and Peter over here has done a thousand and ten good things in, your life, in his life, then should God let Peter in and not you in? See, if we're basing everything on our relationship based upon our good works, we're not going to get anywhere. God says everything that needed to be done was done through Jesus Christ. This is why I, we don't like the word religion. Because religion teaches that you must do, do, do in order to restore your relationship with God. No, 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 no. Christianity says it's already been done. 
And so we have a relationship with God, and we serve Him not out of duty, but out of a love for what He has done for us. In Romans chapter 10, in the second part, as we discovered last week, discussed last week, is really this just need for global evangelism. We talked about how Paul gives us this command that who, really these rhetorical questions, who shall call upon the name of the Lord unless they believe? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It's a command that he has given to people to go and share the gospel. The only way that a person can come in a relationship with God is by the word of God. And the way the word of God is delivered to people is through messengers. And that is us as Christians. And so now we're going to move into our final section this morning of Romans chapter 10. Since the majority of the Jews rejected the Messiah, instead of placing the blame on the Jews, some of Paul's audience assumed the reason was because they never were reached by God's ordained messengers. As we look at the previous verses, as we discussed last week, Paul says the only way that a person can come in a relationship with God is through a messenger. The Jews then conclude, well, that's why we're not saved. Because the messengers did not come to us. We were never told about the gospel. And the Apostle Paul and the verses that we're going to look at here this morning makes it absolutely clear that's not the case. So if you could stand with me out of respect of God's word, we're going to read Romans chapter 10, verses 18 down to verse 21. And this is what it says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all of the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? For Moses, first Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not, I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. The point that Paul is making within these verses is that Israel cannot claim the inability to understand God's will through his message. Through our time together this morning, we will see the final section of Israel's current state in Romans chapter 10. This final section is really the result of Israel's rejection. The result of being the shift of God's attention upon the Jews to the Gentiles, which leads us to our title this morning, the result of Israel's rejection. Thank you. You may be seated. The result of Israel's rejection. This message is hard because it talks about excuse making. We've all been there. And I think us as men um, make more excuses probably than what our wives do. At least this is the case in my family. And so what we're going to talk about this morning not only affects obviously what he's talking about here with the Jews, but it affects us in our own Christian walk. And that's this, this topic of excuse making. Israel could not make the claim that no messengers came to them to present the truth. Paul squashes that pretty quick by using Moses and Isaiah as examples. In essence, Paul says that if the Gentiles, who are not God's chosen people, who do not naturally seek after God, who do not live for God, can understand and accept the gospel, then you as God's chosen people have no excuse. That's in essence what Paul says. Israel tried the very best they could to throw shade on their rejection. They tried the very best they could to try to get Paul to think, listen, it's not really our fault. Now, before we give Israel too hard of a time, we've all been there. Just like Israel, we give one excuse or another for not doing something that God has asked us to do. For Israel, they happen to make an excuse for why they rejected the Messiah, but as we'll see this morning, excuses don't work before an almighty God. They don't. 
When we stand before Christ, we will be given no more opportunity. So if you say, listen, I, I really hope that I'm saved. I hope that I have a relationship with God. And maybe one day when I stand before God and I try to get this whole thing figured out, then I can make that decision. That's, there's no more chances. The moment you die here on earth, it's it. Your destiny's sealed. That's why we cannot make excuses now. This morning, you may be a Christian, and praise the Lord for that. You may have been saved from the power of the penalty of sin, but what excuses are you making to God about the other areas of life? What we're going to see in our time together this morning is three examples that we see here about excuse making. The first one we see is the excuse of not hearing. The excuse of not hearing. We've all given that excuse before, right? Where we've heard somebody say something, but we didn't really listen And so the response is, oh, I didn't hear you say that. Those of you that have kids understand this very well. And one day, Lord willing, when you do have kids, you'll understand it more. There have been multiple times, and my son's sitting over there not listening right now. Uh, He's four, so we're working on it. There have been multiple times where I have called his name at an appropriate level of volume, and he has not answered. Now, we could say it's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a man, and that's, we have this gift of selective hearing. We do. It's a spiritual gift. And uh, I could say that with him. But there have been the times where I have said, buddy, didn't you hear me calling you? Yes, daddy, I did. I just wasn't listening. The other day, my wife and I were texting, and what happens is when we don't fully hear what's going on, we have miscommunication that takes place. And so I've been running all around the triangle this past week, picking up furniture from Facebook Marketplace um, for the church. And so we were texting back and forth and I was saying one thing and she wasn't making sense in her response to me. And I was like, what? I don't know how I can make this any more clear. And so I was like, can we clarify here? And what had happened was she missed a text message that I said earlier. And so because of missing that key text, It was making us come to completely different conclusions. That's what happens sometimes when we legitimately do not hear each other. The Jews could not make that excuse. And that's what Paul says here in verse 18. But I say, have you not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went to all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Paul is citing the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament version of Psalms 19. Four, the reason that Paul chose to cite David in verse 18 was to show that even David understood that God's revelation of himself reached the entire earth. To fully understand what Paul was doing here, we must understand David's relationship to the Jewish nation. The Jews had an immense respect for David. David was one of their leading patriarchs, so to speak, within the Jewish nation. They had no respect or very little respect for Paul. And so for Paul to say something, the Jews would hear and be like, okay, that's nice for you to say. But Paul is oftentimes quoting Old Testament prophets and Old Testament Jewish leaders. So the Jews could not go back and argue with Paul because they agreed with what Paul just said. And so what Paul is doing is he's finding common ground based upon what they both read. And he's helping them understand what it truly means in light of the entire gospel. And so what Paul wanted the Jews to see is that this excuse of not hearing the proclamation of the Messiah just wasn't going to work. In addition, by Paul using this quote, he is most likely referring to the continual spread of the gospel throughout the entire world. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, just before the second coming of Christ, a promise is made by Jesus Christ himself. And it says this, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all of the world for a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. So what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's not only quoting David, 
by helping the Jews understand, listen, God has revealed himself from the very beginning. We'll talk about that here in just a few moments. But he's also foreshadowing the spread of the gospel that's occurring all throughout the entire world. And it was spreading like wildfire during this particular time. But you think about just what the coronavirus has done to a majority of the churches in our nation today. A lot of the churches did not utilize live stream and it wasn't uh, very good and they were forced more or less to be able to build that up. And what you're seeing now is really this internet, this social boom of the gospel being spread all throughout the nation. Even though it's not personal, God has used this in his sovereignty to spread it digitally. And so the gospel is being spread. The Apostle Paul says, you have no excuse. Now let's build upon this thought for just a moment that he's talking about here with the Jews. The very nature of God has been displayed all throughout the world. One of the ways that God does this is through, and we've talked about this for the past several weeks, general revelation. As we discussed last week in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because God has revealed himself to every man through general revelation and placed within every man in his heart the pursuit of all to find this supreme being, no man is without excuse. A matter of fact, in John chapter 1 verse 9, it says, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. In other words, what John is saying there in that particular passage is that the true light, which is God, the light of Jesus Christ, that thought has been placed in the heart of every single person. Now, if you were to think about it from a logical standpoint, going back to Romans chapter 1, every single person has this understanding, this thought of a supreme being out there. But rather than pursuing the thought of who is this true supreme being, they try to satisfy this seeking of this thirst for all in another way. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but in the heart of every single man, part of this process is this hunger for all. It's why in your life, you are always seeking to better yourself. You're always seeking to go into a bigger and better adventure. And those of you that are even uh, uh, extremely reserved and, and extremely uh, quiet have this thought of bettering yourself in some way. There's this pursuit, this hunger to be all. Ecclesiastes talks about this. Within the heart of every single person has been eternity placed. So in other words, this all that's been placed in the heart of every man has been designed by the Creator to only be satisfied by the Creator Himself. But rather than look to the Creator, mankind pursues all in a different way. And Romans chapter 1 talks about it and the sexual pursuits. They are twisting the very thing that God has given them to be pure between a man and a woman into something else in this pursuit of all. And the Bible says that in their continuous pursuit of all, they fall deeper and deeper into corruption and sin. But in the heart of every single man, there's this thirst for God. And so Paul says, listen, you're, you're without excuse. In your very heart, there's this, there's this desire to be all that can only be satisfied by the Creator that was been given to you for the Creator to draw yourself to Him. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, no man is without excuse. 
General revelation removes any excuse of a person not hearing about God. God reveals himself through general revelation and he sends messengers to spread the gospel to every part of the world so that the entire world can hear the good news of the Savior. It is not sufficient enough for mankind to receive Christ only through general revelation. The Apostle Paul talks about that in the previous verses. So when it comes to our pursuit of God, every single person has this thought of God, but the only way that this salvation can be experienced is through special revelation, which comes through the Word of God, and God has designed us as messengers to spread that. That's why we have missionaries. That's why we have church planters. That's why we have churches. It's because God has ordained a group of people to go to that particular community to share the gospel, the special revelation with those particular people. So as Christians, we cannot rest upon the excuse of not hearing when it comes to the will of God. It is true that God does not speak to us the same way he did in the Old Testament. But if you were to compare what we have now with the entire revelation of God to what they had in the Old Testament, anyone could argue that we have even less of an excuse now than they did in the Old Testament because we have it all right here. This is the entire word of God. Everything that God wants us to know is right here. So we have no excuse to not hearing. The second excuse that we're going to see here this morning is the excuse of not knowing. If you look at the general progression, right? Um, it's, hey, did you do this? Oh, I didn't hear you. You didn't hear me. You catch him in that excuse. And what's the next response? Oh, I did not know you wanted me to do that. I didn't hear you. Oh, I didn't know. And the Jews are beginning to use this excuse. I did not know. It never works with anyone, especially with your wife. <laughs> Men, you know those times when your, when your wife follows up with you about a request that she made earlier in the day, and as soon as she speaks, you feel the beads of sweat forming on your forehead. You can try to use the excuse of, I did not know you wanted me to do that, but your wife is smarter than you, and she always knows, which is why, all the more reason, lying is never a good idea. After hearing Paul's response in verse 18, the Jews realized that they could not use the excuse of not knowing. Paul acknowledges their attempt to use this excuse by asking the question, but I say, did not Israel know? In the beginning of verse 19, the word know means understanding. And within this context, it carries this twofold meaning. One being, did they not understand what they were doing to reject their Messiah? The second being, did they understand what they were, would happen if they did reject the Messiah? And Paul says, listen, you did know. He begins with Moses. He says, first, Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. What he's doing in this particular passage is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. In that particular context, Moses proclaimed to the Jews that just as they provoke the jealousy of God by worshiping other gods, God would provoke Israel to jealousy and anger by humiliating them before a foolish no nation. It sounds like, man, God is just, a, um, he's just an angry God that is wanting to get back at people. That's not the case. See, everything that God does is ultimately for our good, but we don't always fully understand what God is doing because we're not God. See, the Jews were pursuing this awe-craving in other ways. They were searching for other gods. Well, God knows that that only leads them down a path of danger and heartache and hurt. God knows that the only way that you can be satisfied is through Him. And so He, as according to Moses, provokes this jealousy of Israel in order to turn them back by lifting up this no-nation. 
So when the Apostle Paul talks about that verse, the no nation that he's referring to is the Gentiles. That is us as non-Jews. So what you see here is a shift. You see it specifically in Acts. There's this shift from the gospel being presented specifically through the Jews now over to the Gentiles. So it's not that God has replaced the nation of Israel with the Gentiles. He has just simply set the nation of Israel aside now, and he's proclaiming the gospel through the Gentiles. What he's doing is he's showing the Jews, listen, the very people whom you've hated and you've despised, they're the only ones now that are pursuing righteousness in efforts to bring the Jews back to himself. Even though Israel rejected the Messiah, God still used their rejection as an opportunity for the unbelieving Gentiles to receive the good news. Paul uses the phrase in all the world to explain that the gospel's purpose was never intended for just one people group, but for every single human being in the world. The gospel transcends people, groups, and race, and cultures. It unites even the most unlikely of people together, which is why we can have people from multiple different countries, as we do here this morning, all united underneath Jesus Christ. It's not this oneness that we talked about earlier that we need to all be friends and love each other. No, no, no. We're only one through Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, you cannot use the excuse of you not knowing. Moses has been talking about this ever since the Old Testament. In verse 20, Paul uses Isaiah as another example to support his point. He says, But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asketh not after me. And verses 20 and 21, they're both quotes from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 2. Paul uses both of these verses to describe really this nature of salvation. The non-Jewish people did not seek God, yet they found Him. And the Jews were God's chosen people, yet they rejected Him. In the original context of Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, God is answering a prayer of Isaiah to return the rebellious to Israel. Those to whom God reveals himself appear to be Israelites who had formerly rejected God. He says in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, I am sought of them that asketh not for me. I have found them then that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. When Paul says it in verse 20, he's talking about the Gentiles. The people that rejected God from the very beginning, I'm using them now to bring them back to me. Again, supporting the very fact that the Jews could not use the excuse of, I did not hear and I did not know. In Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it was written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. How can we bring this to us today? I don't want to lose people. Yes, it's talking about the Jews, but how many people have you shared the gospel to? Or maybe you're in this particular situation. Or you may say, well, that doesn't apply to me. That, that, that's for them. It's not for me. Or I did not know that's the case. Or I don't believe that to be so. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is nobody has an excuse when it comes to this saving knowledge of Christ. We can try to make them, but before an almighty, 
all-powerful, sovereign God, we have no excuse. Now let's take it to the Christian realm here, us as Christians, or those that have been saved by the power of the gospel. God may be calling you to do something here. He may be calling you to take a stand where you are at your campus or at work. We may use the excuse, oh God, I did not know you wanted me to do that. Or I did not know that we should do that. What excuse are you making before God? It doesn't work before an almighty, all-powerful God. Here's the final excuse that we're going to look at here this morning. And that is this, the excuse of not applying. The excuse of not applying. You've heard somebody say this, again, going out with progression. I did not hear you. Oh, okay, maybe you did say that. I did not know you wanted me to do that. Okay, now I understand what you want me to do. That doesn't apply to me. The Jews are saying that does not apply to me. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, it says, um, But to Israel he saith, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. In other words, he's saying, All day long have I stretched and have I reached and have I pursued a group of people that is nothing but disobedient and nothing but contradicting. It does apply to you. I have patiently pursued you and you've just shut me down over and over and over again. And in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2, which is that verse 21 is a quote of, he says, I have spread out my hands all day into a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. In Matthew chapter 21, we see this interesting parable. We're going to conclude with this that explains this. So if you flip back to Matthew chapter 21 here this morning, we're going to read this parable. Matthew chapter 21. This is Jesus Christ talking, and, and really to explain what's going on here, he gives this illustration to the Jews that are listening. We're going to read verses 33 through verse 34. It's a parable of the wicked farmer. He says, Here another parable. There is a certain householder which has planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and led it to a husbandman and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. And when the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto these husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto the husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You understand the parable that Jesus Christ is giving here? He's saying that there is a, there is a group of men, really to summarize, this parable is of a landowner who planted a vineyard. And he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. And at harvest time, he sent his servants to the farmers really to collect his fruit. But they rebelliously beat and killed him. So the landowner sent his son expecting them to respect him. Yet the wicked farmers killed the son too. 
Jesus then asked, what will the vineyard owner do to those farmers? The religious leaders only gave the possible answer. He will completely destroy the parable, bringing all of this home. Jesus claimed that he was the stone that the builders rejected. He was the son in the parable that was scorned and would soon be killed, the religious, the religious leaders with the wicked farmers. And as a result of the rejection, as we see here all throughout history, Jesus said that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them and the one whom they rejected would be their judge. This parable is a foreshadowing of what we read here in Romans chapter 10. I'm going to take the kingdom away from the Jews and we're going to give it to a nation that doesn't seek me and that is the Gentiles. God is not through with Israel. But Israel has been currently set aside in God's plan. And now he's focusing on the Gentiles. So for us, what is this picture? God's patience with you will not last forever. Maybe you're here this morning and, and I've mentioned the gospel several times and you've heard of that word, but you don't fully understand what the full impact of the gospel means. And that's this. As I said earlier, every single person is born in sin. There's nothing we can do about that. If you've lied once, that's evidence of your sin, but I'm sure that we've done a lot of bad things. There's not been one person in this entire world other than Jesus Christ himself that was born in perfection. Every single person was born in sin. So therefore, we do not have a relationship with God. We are on our way, and we don't like to talk about this, but the most loving thing that I could do is actually mention it. We are all on our way to hell when we are born in sin. The gospel, which literally means good news, is, is talking about what God did for us, and that was sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die on the cross for us in our place so that all of those that place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone in order to restore their relationship to God will be saved. See, what the Bible talks about is Jesus' righteousness is placed on us. It's called imputation. It's imputing His righteousness upon us. So therefore, when we receive Christ, we are now looked at in the eyes of God as being righteous. There's this term we talk about called redeemed. Redeemed means to be bought back. The most loving thing that anyone has ever done for you is this redemption that Jesus Christ provides. See, as unsaved people, we are underneath this ownership of Satan. It sounds weird even saying that. What kind of occult thing are you talking about? No, it's the facts. The Bible says that because of our sin, we do not have a relationship with God, so therefore we have ownership of Satan. See, when God created us, we were created in perfection. He owned us. But when mankind chose to sin through Adam and Eve, that sin was passed on. Now God does not own man. Man was now forfeited that opportunity, and he's owned by Satan and the ways of the flesh. When Jesus comes and he shed his blood on the cross for us, which is the only payment that is sufficient enough to buy us back, those that place their faith and trust in Christ alone have now been bought back through the power of Jesus' blood. They are now owned by God. And the Bible says that when the moment that a person does that, their relationship with God is completely 100% restored, and no one can ever take that away from us. John chapter 10, verse 30. And so my question here this morning is, are you making excuses to do that? We made it absolutely clear. It is not based upon your good works. It is not based upon your Christian heritage. My grandparents went to church. My parents went to church, so therefore I'm a Christian. No, no, no. It's a personal decision that you make. Has there been a moment in your life where you've repented of your sins and you called upon Christ to be your Savior? If not, you can do so this morning.